you may have heard the phrase, chasing shadows. It means basically trying to do something that's impossible. So in sport, the losing team will often blame the referee, they'll often blame VAR, they'll often blame their list of injuries or their busy schedule. It wasn't our fault we lost. But sometimes, a losing team will have a moment of brutal honesty and they'll say, we were just chasing shadows today. Meaning, we just couldn't get close to the players on the other team. We couldn't deal with their speed or their skill or their tactics. We did our very best, but we had no chance of winning. It wasn't the referee's fault, it wasn't VAR's fault. We lost because we were chasing shadows. And that expression helps us to understand what Paul is saying in the passage we're going to look at this morning. Paul is not giving instruction on how to win a game of football, of course. Paul is dealing with something much more significant than that. He's dealing with true spirituality. Earlier in his letter to the Colossians, Paul said he strenuously contends to see these brothers and sisters in Christ become fully mature. He wants to see them flourish by enjoying true spirituality. And with that same goal in mind, in our passage this morning, Paul says, don't go chasing shadows. Don't try to do the impossible. Don't seek true spirituality in places where you're never going to find it. Make sure your desire to flourish spiritually is not being wasted on chasing shadows. We're going to pick up at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 23. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1183, or in the larger print Bibles, 1831. The context here is that in the previous verses, Paul has been talking about the freedom we have in Christ. Freedom from present slavery to sin, freedom from our past record of sin, and freedom from all other powers. In Christ, the spiritual forces of this world have no hold on us, Paul said. As Christians, we are in an incredibly privileged, blessed position. And Paul does not want us to get distracted from that by chasing shadows. So he says in verse 16, Therefore, in the light of what I've just told you about freedom in Christ, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, 
Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is God's Word. And it gives us two ways that we might chase shadows. And it finishes by encouraging us to go after reality instead. Two ways that we might chase shadows, Paul says, are by getting engrossed in special regulations or by seeking incredible experiences. And in the first two sections of this passage, Paul warns us away from both of those. First, in verses 16 to 17, he says, spiritual reality is found in Christ, not in special regulations. Earlier in this letter, we've seen the Colossians are being tempted by teaching that is not helpful. Paul has spoken about the danger of these Christians being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. He said, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And now we get more details about what that is exactly. Just look again at verse 16. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. There are two categories here. There's food and drink, and there's special days. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by those categories, meaning, don't let anyone make those things the measure of your spiritual maturity. So obviously, there were people in Colossae trying to make these things the measure of spiritual maturity. What might have been involved in that? Well, let's think first about food and drink. The Colossians are hearing fine-sounding arguments telling them the path to spiritual breakthrough is to realize the importance of what you eat and drink. Truly spiritual people follow a certain set of rules about what they put in their body. Now, part of the background to this may have been the Old Testament food laws. There were quite detailed regulations about what the Israelites could and couldn't eat. But that's probably only part of the background, because those Old Testament food laws didn't say very much about what you could and couldn't drink. So what Paul has in mind was probably a unique set of rules, although it might have drawn inspiration from those Old Testament regulations. But in any case, the specifics aren't what's really important here. What is important is that this teaching made your diet a matter of great spiritual significance. This teaching said, truly spiritual people don't eat or drink certain things. Their observance of special regulations about diet brought them closer to God. That was the teaching. Or as we'll see in a few moments, those special regulations prepared people for special spiritual experiences. 
We have to ask, are there any equivalents to this today? Well, there are, aren't there? Think about vegetarianism or veganism. No doubt there are some good reasons why a person might become a vegetarian because they don't like meat, for example. But it's fairly common to be told that becoming a vegetarian or a vegan actually brings spiritual benefits. One vegan writer says, veganism and spirituality are intertwined in many ways. I experienced a spiritual awakening after going vegan. I've been told by another Christian that all Christians should be vegetarians. Now that person stopped short of saying that giving up meat would lead me to a spiritual awakening, but the implication was I would be a better Christian if I was a vegetarian. Then what about the use of alcohol? Again, there are some good reasons why a person might abstain from alcohol. For example, a personal or a family history of alcoholism. That is one good reason. But the Bible does not support the idea that teetotalism puts us on a higher spiritual level. Jesus himself said this. It was in our reading earlier. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them. For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And the Gospel writer Mark adds, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. We're all free to make our own decisions about what we eat and drink. Now, there are boundaries to that, of course, the Bible warns us against overindulgence through gluttony or through drunkenness. The Bible does say that our stomach can become our God. It does say the misuse of alcohol can lead us into serious trouble. The Bible does set boundaries on our use of food and drink. But it does not present abstinence from certain foods or drinks as the path to spiritual awakening or closeness to God. And the same applies to special days. In verse 16, Paul also says, Do not let anyone judge you with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Again, part of the background to this is probably special days in the Old Testament. There were six annual festivals in the Old Testament, plus the weekly Sabbath day, from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, a day of rest. And those were significant days of spiritual celebration in the Old Testament. But, just like the Old Testament food laws, their significance fell away once Christ came. It's not that it was wrong for Christians to carry on celebrating those days. We know from the book of Acts, Paul himself was happy to join in with those celebrations. But here he insists, observing special days does not bring anyone closer to God. Special days are no gateway 
to a higher spirituality. Today, the church meets on Sunday because that is the Lord's day, the day Jesus rose from the dead. We meet together on Sunday not because Sunday is an especially holy day that makes us holy when we celebrate it. We meet together on Sunday because we are a family in Christ. And this is our day to worship Him together and listen to Him together. We meet together on Sunday because we know the value of this time together. We value time to celebrate God's goodness together, His greatness, receive spiritual food together, and enjoy family fellowship together. But we do not meet together on Sunday so we can get a tick on some sort of spiritual scorecard. Likewise, we do not choose what we eat and drink for the sake of ticks on a spiritual scorecard. And look at Paul's explanation of why we don't do that in verse 17. These food regulations, special days, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Those Old Testament food laws, those Old Testament special days, they were not bad things, but they were temporary things. They were good and useful pointers to the reality that would come in Christ. He is the one who truly cleanses us and satisfies us and sustains us more than any dietary decisions ever could. Christ is the one who gives us rest for our souls more than any holiday or religious festival ever could. And so, if you and I seek cleansing and rest for our souls or spiritual awakening through any of those other things, we are chasing shadows. It is not possible to find spiritual reality in special regulations. It can only be found in Christ. So if you want to abstain from meat or celebrate Passover, by all means go ahead and do that. But do not think that brings you any closer to spiritual reality. Don't think it lifts you to a higher spiritual level. Paul goes on. Spiritual progress comes through relationship with Christ, not through incredible experiences. Have a look at verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. What does that mean? Well, it seems a particular brand of spirituality that was popular in Colossae was a combination of special regulations, as we've seen, that led to, or was supposed to lead to, incredible experiences. We've heard about some of the special regulations in verse 16. Here in verse 18, that seems to be what Paul is referring to when he talks about false humility. 
Later on, he calls it harsh treatment of the body. So it seems what was being taught in Colossae was taking on those dietary restrictions and those special days that set you up to enjoy incredible spiritual experiences. Observing the special regulations primed the pump for incredible things to happen to you spiritually. And the incredible experience that Paul mentions here is the worship of angels. Now, there are two ways we could read that phrase. One possibility is to read it as giving worship to angels. Or we could read it as joining in with the worship angels offer to God. Giving worship to angels or joining in with the worship angels offer to God. Which is it? Well, in the context here, I think it is very unlikely this is about giving worship to angels. Earlier in this letter, Paul has mentioned the Colossians' firm faith in Christ. Would Paul have said that if he thought they were toying with the idea of giving worship to angels instead of to Christ? I don't think that's very likely. It is much more likely these Colossian Christians are being attracted by stories of people joining in with the worship that angels offer to God. Being lifted up into some sort of incredible heavenly experience. And that also makes most sense of the next statement in verse 18. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. In other words, they not only claim to have had an incredible spiritual experience, they're putting great weight on it. They're trying to get a lot of mileage out of it. They're milking it to gain respect for themselves, for how spiritually high up they are, how much spiritual progress they've made. Might there be equivalence to this today? Well, some of you will be aware there's a large church movement in America that claims to have angel feathers fall during their worship services and gold dust. They claim that a glory cloud sometimes descends during their services, similar to the pillar of cloud that traveled with Moses and the Israelites in the Old Testament. In recent years, there have been quite a few books written by people, often children, who claim they have gone to heaven and come back to tell about what they saw. In some Christian circles, the ability to speak in tongues is seen as the sign of having the Holy Spirit. No speaking in tongues, no presence of the Spirit in your life. And so... Of course, in those churches, there is lots of speaking in tongues. Or how about the expression, God told me. God told me to do this, or God told me to tell you this. Now, if by that you mean, I read this command in the Bible, God told me, okay. 
But I think often when people say God told me, what they mean is, I didn't read this in the Bible, but I want you to fall in line with it anyway. What are you and I to make of all those kinds of things? Angel fellers falling in church, trips to heaven, claims to have heard directly from God, and other extraordinary events. Well, I don't think we have to deny those kind of things could ever happen. We might come to the conclusion that a lot of it is fraud and deception. Certainly some of the children who wrote books about their trips to heaven later confessed to having made it all up after they made tons of money for their parents. So we may come to the conclusion that a lot of it is fraud, but we can also allow God to do those sorts of things if he chooses to. And if we read the Bible, we cannot deny God could do those sort of things. What's interesting is, in another of his New Testament letters, Paul himself actually mentions an incredible spiritual experience he had. You can read about it later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But, in Paul's case, he mentioned that experience very reluctantly. Actually, with embarrassment, if you read the context. And unlike the people in Colossae, Paul refused to go into great detail about what happened. He did not try to use his experience to claim some sort of higher spiritual status for himself. And that's where Paul differed from those in Colossae. Notice in verse 18, he says, The people claiming to have those incredible experiences are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. In other words, even if they did experience what they claim to have experienced, the emphasis they put on it and the spiritual kudos they try to get out of it, that proves they're not extra spiritual people. They are unspiritual. They're puffed up with pride. They're thinking that experience gives them spiritual superiority over everyone else. So the point here is not that incredible things can never happen. The point is, when it comes to actual spiritual progress, incredible things are neither here nor there. They are no reliable indicator of spiritual maturity. After all, we know from the Bible there are other spiritual forces at work in this world. And to some extent... They can do incredible things. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God sent Moses to Pharaoh. Moses was to tell Pharaoh to release the Israelites from slavery. And God gave Moses some miraculous signs to perform in Pharaoh's presence. And what Exodus tells us is, as Moses performed those miraculous signs... Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate some of the signs. Not all of them. They did run out of steam at a certain point. But that incident shows incredible spiritual experiences are ambiguous to a certain extent. 
they do not necessarily come from God. The book of Revelation emphasizes that. Revelation chapter 13 describes a servant of Satan who can perform great signs. So incredible spiritual experiences are actually no reliable indicator. It's the Spirit of God that's at work. Much of the incredible claims we hear about may be fraud. And even the stuff that actually happens is no guarantee of authentic spirituality. So, what is? What does lead to guaranteed spiritual progress? Paul says, it's not incredible experiences. It is relationship with Christ. Here in verse 19, he says, people who boast about incredible experiences and claim those experiences as proof of their spiritual progress, actually, verse 19, those people have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Several times in this letter, Paul has said, Christ is the head. He's the head of the church, and he's the head of every other power and authority in the world, including every spiritual power. And so the way to spiritual progress is not to chase incredible experiences. The devil can produce those. The way to spiritual progress is to pursue ever deeper relationship with Christ the head. That's how spiritual progress comes. That's how we grow strong and resilient spiritually, just like a growing body. Your physical body does not grow through receiving occasional dramatic infusions of power, does it? No, it grows through a day-to-day, unspectacular process of food, rest, and exercise. And spiritual growth That does not ordinarily come through a series of heavenly experiences or sublime moments. Spiritual growth ordinarily comes from daily communion with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It comes from looking to Christ in the daily, unspectacular details of ordinary life. The devil cannot replicate the spiritual growth that comes through daily relationship with Christ. And even if the devil could replicate that, he wouldn't want to. The devil has no interest in producing genuine spiritual progress in us. He would love it if we would chase spectacular experiences. But he does not want us to develop a daily deepening relationship with Jesus. So let's do what the devil doesn't want us to do. And if, in the course of that daily deepening relationship with Christ, if in the course of that, God gives you some incredible spiritual experience, wonderful. 
You can praise him for that experience. Ask him to teach you through it. But don't chase after stuff like that. That's the point. Don't become enamored either with other people's claims to have had those kind of experiences. If you do, if you become fascinated with all that stuff, you lay yourself open to being deceived. Or to being puffed up with pride over things that are no reliable indicator of spiritual progress anyway. And so, finally in our passage, Paul says, in light of what we've been saying, pursue true maturity, not just the appearance of maturity. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their far harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul asks us, what is it you want? True maturity? or just the appearance of maturity? Do you want to be spiritually mature? Or do you just want to be thought of as spiritually mature? Because if you just want to cultivate a reputation for maturity, well, you can probably achieve that by taking on a Spartan lifestyle. Creating tough regulations for yourself. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is picking up on what we heard back in verse 16. It's about food, drink, and a special religious schedule. And as we said earlier, it is fine to avoid certain foods. But if you're going to do that, be honest about the fact. Verse 22, food and drink are going to perish with use. They have no lasting spiritual impact on us. And so food do's and don'ts and schedule do's and don'ts are not indicators of being more spiritual. They're based on merely human commands and teachings. Now they might impress some people with how hardcore you are, but they don't really say anything about your relationship with Jesus. And that is what really matters. Equally, the incredible worship experiences we heard about back in verse 18. Verse 23 says none of that has any value in restraining sensual indulgence. We'll see next time, the New Testament does have great interest in our daily lives. It has great interest in our character and our conduct. It wants us to lead increasingly holy, Christ-like lives. It does want us to leave sensual indulgence behind, to become pure people. But here the point is, the way to move forward with that, the way to mature in Christ-likeness, is not to make up our own regulations, 
It's not to chase after impressive spiritual experiences and then boast about them. Because no matter how tough and Spartan-like our regulations are, no matter how wild and wonderful our spiritual experiences are, those things by themselves will not restrain sensual indulgence in us. They will not make us more Christ-like. They might earn us a reputation for maturity, but they won't actually make us mature. For that, we need to pursue Christ himself. We need to submit ourselves, body and soul, to him. In our hearts, we need to say to him every day, you are Lord of my life. I don't rule my life. You do. And so as I read your word, I look to you for direction. As I face temptation, I look to you for help. As I read your commands, I don't turn away from them because your commands are not burdensome to me. Your commands are my delight. That is how we pursue true maturity. That's how we avoid chasing shadows. And for that, we need God's help. So let's ask for his help. Let's pray together. Father, we read these things. We read these warnings away from empty things and chasing shadows. And we say together that we want reality. We don't want to follow a spiritual system we made up ourselves or that we borrowed from someone else. We don't want to waste our time chasing spiritual experiences that might be temporarily exciting, but that are ultimately empty and unsatisfying. We want reality. We want you. Because nothing is more real and true and lasting than you. You can satisfy us fully. So we ask you to help us. Help us in this lifelong process of seeking you through your son Jesus. And if we have been distracted lately by other things, we pray that you will lead us forward to true maturity in Christ. Help us here as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to help one another. By not elevating spectacular experiences among ourselves. By not encouraging one another to add human regulations onto sincere and pure devotion to Christ. As a church, will you deliver us from chasing after shadows? Lead us to pursue true Christ-likeness in all that we do. We ask this in his name. Amen. Our last song is a, a prayer that we can sing together for God to carry on his work in us.
Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.